the misconception that people have is to believe that Rastafarianism is a religion. Mm. It's not a religion, it's a liberation movement. That's where it was born. Um, it was initiated against the repressive um, pro-capitalist government that, that was in Jamaica at the time, i.e. Alexander Bustamante. And the first, or the, or the major proponents of Rastafarianism weren't even what, what we would characterize today as Rastas. Mm -hmm. They were like, like Leonard Howell and, and others. And one of their main... Snow Mathers with my motherfuckers ass. You want to know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. <laughs> Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'm a ball around science. What are we talking about here? Peace, peace, peace. It's Rakeem with Wise the Dome TV. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. Uh, he's an author, Pan-African, and scholar, um, Tristan Graham. He has a new book called Th Thoughts of an Unchained Mind. Um, and so we're about to get in and build. I appreciate you for coming through, bro. No problem, bro. No doubt, no doubt, man. So first, you know, before uh, we get into anything else, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, man. What what um how did you become an author and, and also what led you uh to you know I guess learning your history and, and becoming pan-African? Right, so um I'm a Jamaican, first of all, which is probably something that people wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, or probably you realize from the accent. Mm -hmm. Um I'm actually 20 years old. I'm currently studying at the University of the West Indies. Mm -hmm. I major in political science and philosophy. Um, for Pan-Africanism and my journey in, in credited to Malcolm X, mm. who is probably for everyone right. the first to right. really speak their language. Right? Um, after I got introduced to Malcolm, the journey just took off from there. I started researching um, other Pan-African and Black nationalist um, scholars. Because I'm Jamaican and Garvey is a hero here. Sure. And he was the only national hero apart from probably Nani of the Maroons, who I, yes. I truly acknowledge as someone who contributed deeply to the liberation of the African people and the independence of Jamaica. So, studying Garvey, Malcolm, um, for a brief stint, I was studying MLK. Mm. And initially, which I probably think catches a lot of us, is the propaganda around MLK. Yeah. Uh, pacification of his legacy mm -hmm. to make him seem as some passive figure, right? And, and later on in the struggle and studies, I realized that what we've been taught by the liberal media is actually a lie. And that's right. MLK. Um, so. I've always been passionate about topics like this from an early age. But my journey into the search for myself, meaning the African within me, um, led me to Pan-Africanism. Before that, I was a bit of a conservative, you know, because mm -hmm. we were brought up in the education system and, and others. So I, do, I, like, I could 
tell you about the Roman Empire off the top of my head. <laughs> right, right. right. I realized, and Greek as well, the Mongol empires, the Aztec empires. And one day I just realized I really don't know anything about Africa. Mm. I watched on television or the, just slavery, right? And I just got to thinking, well, if I look this way and I'm being told that I'm African, then let me research the Africans in history. And from you begin the journey, it just doesn't stop. Right, um, almost definitely. Yeah, and as you know, in Jamaica, if you want to learn about African history, there's only really one group of people you go to, and they're right. Rastas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they can learn history from. So in Jamaica, you have prominent Rastas such as Muta Baruka, Kofi, mm. uh, Priest Isaac, and others who do talks on YouTube as well. So I'll just listen to them and be like, Okay, well, if you're saying this, then let me go do the research. Mm-hmm. And then I start getting into the works of like Shekanta Diop, um, Ivan Van Sertima, even though no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of touching on Van Sertima's work. Yeah. Um, John Henry Clark, um, Chancellor Williams, even I'm also touching on his work as well. Basil mm-hmm. um, Davidson, and I've actively read one, one, one of his books in light of the propaganda in regards to... Right, I, I think I had that as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so those were the scholars who I actively study and learn from. And in regards to West African history, and I also learned a lot about Kimet, because, you know, the romanticization or the romanticization of... Kemet is a really big thing within the conscious community mm-hmm. where Egypt seems to be the only civilization that people actually want yeah. to claim. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, then. if you go back to ancient times, the, the Israelites came from Kush and the lands of Kush or, or Nubia, if you want to call it Nubia, and came out of Egypt, right? And after... Egypt fell, which was like thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Where did all of the African people go? Where, like, where were they after that? Right. So you find that African history is not just a, 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 like a one-way study where you yeah. just read one book and you know everything about Africa <laughs> or one civilization and you know about Africa. So you have to start getting into the works of like Ibn Battuta mm-hmm. um, and the Islamic or Arabic writers that were in the West African kingdoms, because if you want to study West African history, you have to look to the Arabic texts, like Tariq, Al-Fatash, and Mm -hmm. other texts, which are very unknown to majority of the population. And majority of people don't even know that majority of West Africa was actually Islamic or of some sort of Arabic background. Yeah. The indigenous population. So that was just the history part, the revolutionary part. <laughs> started going to people like Kwame Torre, who is a huge influence on, 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 on who I am. Um, QEP Newton, the Black Panther Party. And these are all new things to me because I'm from Jamaica. Mm. So these sort of stuff, Americans probably grew up with an aunt or uncle who would pass down this information to them. But for me, I had to actively search. Mm-hmm. So when I found these guys, I'm like, wait, 
there were actually revolutionary movements going on during these times. And after I, 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 I found some of those texts, I was like, wow. Like, I got a different lens to look at the world through. And then you start studying the economic side of it. Mm-hmm. Right, where because it can't just be a, um, a theologian, right? Because, yeah, you can theorize, but in actuality, it has to be practical. So, start reading the works of like Marx and Lenin and other Marxist writers like David Harvey, Richard Wolf, um, Antonio Gramsci, and I'm like, hold on, this system we're living in. <laughs> it's it's like, like we can do better and we have to do better mm-hmm. and then for a brief time I was caught up in the ideology right and then I was like alright are there any black people who or African people who are major proponents of these theories yes back to Africa right as well within the Caribbean because I found people within the Caribbean who were actively practicing these ideologies within the pan, within the Pan African struggle. Like Walter Rodney, George Podmore, and others. And then when you go to the continent, you're you are like, whoa, there's a plethora of people who were involved in armed struggles who were influenced by these works. Kwame Nkrumah, Samora Michel, Julius Naire, um Leopold Senghor, um and just I know, I think there is so many people that were, that were, that were just influenced by his works. So for me, just studying and learning is what got me to where I am today. And my message to anyone is just read, mobilize, and organize. Yes. Like, that's, like, that's just the basic. You know, um, so great answer, brother. And a uh, couple of things I wanted to touch on is like you you mentioned um, um, one uh, the image of because I I've been like uh, this past week I went back and uh, and started reading um, uh, MLK's Why We Can't Wait and uh, I had uh, recently uh, visited the uh, Civil Rights Museum in, in Memphis Tennessee and. Um, Going back, because it's been a while since I read his works, so going back and reading it, um, coming out of his own mouth, he's a lot more radical than they, the image that they show or portray of him uh, these days. Like, I remember, like, um, on, on his birthday, you know, like, uh, online, um, you, you start to see, you know, uh, real white ring slash white supremacists say, you know, happy birthday, Martin Luther King. We love you. But back in the day, they were calling him a communist. They were calling him a radical. Like, if you can just speak on that a little bit, like how America and probably other places, you know, have effectively at this point made Martin Martin, uh, Luther King something that he's really not or never was. All right, so there is a, in the first chapter of D.I. Lenin's State of Revolution, he, he speaks to this, where revolutionaries are remade or reborn after their death. 
mm. to please the bourgeois population. And with Malcolm, it seemed to see people's memory that this is not even 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, it's just the other day. And Malcolm was considered by J. Edgar Hoover as the most dangerous man in the United States. Right. Like, it's like people just fought, like forget that. You talk about Martin, right? Yeah, yeah, Martin. So people just forget that. Right. And I'm like, all right. Do you remember when he was thrown in Birmingham jail? Do you remember right. all the letters he wrote from the, the, the um, Birmingham jail? Mm-hmm. Um, the march to Washington was a big thing back then. Not it, and I think people are looking at him through a modern paradigm yes. where what he did then is kind of normal now with the marches and stuff because of the whole classification of the meaning of the marches. But back then, Marches were a huge, huge thing. Right, right. Since right. people forget that he was living in um, in um, the Jim Crow era, deep in the in the South, mm. the, Birmingham, and the place is crazy, the right? Racist place yeah. in the world, right? And because after his death, and given the fact that he's also a, a, a Christian, which plays an active role in in um his pacification. And the turning away from the radical elements of the civil rights movement prior to well after Malcolm's death, where you see leaders such as Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and others who become puppets for the Democratic Party. Right. And one of the reasons why why Martin was taken out was because he was undergoing a shift mm-hmm. in his Right, he was moving away from social yes. um, stuff and going more into economic self-determination. But he said that we were coming to Washington to get our check. Yeah. <laughs> and Malcolm, to touch on Malcolm for a bit, realized that as well. Mm-hmm. And if you check out when Malcolm was killed, mm-hmm. who else was killed during the same time? There's a man by the name of Pinto. Mm. And I believe I don't get, I, like I don't get it wrong. Um, I believe it's Ghana. Mm-hmm. They were killed actually on this, and then a couple of years after, when Martin adopted some of the ideologies that Malcolm was a major proponent of, he too was killed. Right. Short, like in like in quick succession. So and. A lot, like a lot of people don't study well Martin outside of the mainstream periphery of um, We Shall Overcome and um, I Have a Dream and other words liberal media. And you know that there were nonviolent forces, sorry, there were violent forces who were protecting Malcolm, such as the Crown and others. Mm-hmm. And when you find this stuff, you're like, and he, and he, and he, act- and he actively had a firearm. Yes. So the idea that Martin was some sort of um, just, oh, kumbaya. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and let's go down to the riverside and beg these white people to give us something. It's just false. Yeah. They, they, and, and it's funny because they, they really... If you really think about it, mainstream really only plays 
the I Have a Dream speech. They don't even, they don't play any of the other ones. Any of them, bro. And it's like, I mean, we can I, see. I, I had someone say, say something the other day that the I Have a Dream speech is Malcolm, is, is Martin's best ever speech. And I'm like, why are you talking about <laughs> No. <laughs> Literally, the speech that, that is one of his worst speeches, it was actually someone behind him who was like, yo, this isn't really that good. Well, I think it was his wife or so him saying, oh, you need to say this or anything because he wasn't really prepared for the speech. And yeah. probably that's why the words, I have a dream, resonate so much because the most powerful messages oftentimes become more, come out of spontaneous circumstances. Mm-hmm. That was definitely not his best speech. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, another thing that I wanted to uh, get into is because... Uh, Whenever you talked about your journey in education and um, learning your history, um, I think uh, one of the powerful points that you touched on, what I think a lot of people don't realize or they either get stuck in certain places is this. You talked about, um, you know, studying your history, right? Um, In some cases, in other people's journey, they'll study their history. They'll possibly study some type of, you know, uh, religious text or, you know, some type of spiritual system or, yeah. or like, you know, something culturally. Right. Mm-hmm. But after that, a lot of times they just stay in those two and those two uh, ciphers, those two rooms. And like you said, you started studying, okay, well, if this system is doing our people like this, all across the globe, then what are some other systems that are, uh, you know, the antithesis of, you know, white American capitalism or white capitalism or, or global capitalism or whatever you would like to call it? Um, what made you, you know, specifically say, hey, okay, well, let me start studying some alternative ways of living. Because, you know, that's obviously important because in a lot of cases, people don't really understand people. So I think people have a a misconception, not only of like Martin, like we just spoke of, because Martin was leading towards some socialist ideas. Right. Um, Whenever, you know, with workers strikes and things like that, sanitation workers strike. And um, Malcolm was obviously a pan-African, especially um around 63 64 he became international started going to ghana and other places uh you know building with um our brothers and sisters all over the uh, continent and you know the diaspora as well you mentioned kwame and kruma um we have people like thomas sankara we have writers um like uh and activists like uh uh walter rodney which I know you know a lot about from being from the Caribbean, but all of these people were dealing in some form of either, you know, socialism, Marxism, or communism. What is it about those three that makes everybody, you know, freaked out and too scared to study those things? All right. First of all, you have to realize that we are educated um, in a certain way for a reason. Um, the 
propaganda surrounding Marxism where people are literally afraid to be called Marxist or communist or socialist is because of the active propaganda that's set out, well, set forth by the status quo. Um, the reason it's so appealing to poor people is because naturally people are less leaning. Mm-hmm. People want food to be easily, access- easily accessible, um, free education, and stuff like that. Like, those are just common stuff that poor people want. And we have to realize that within our analysis of the global system, there are specific class interests, right? Because a lot of people recognize classism, but yet still they won't study Marx, mm-hmm. who is the most thorough in the system of classism and how to get rid of it. So for me, when I was going to school, we briefly got an introduction to Marx. Because I did so because in, in Jamaica we go up to grade 13, but we call it sixth form. Mm-hmm. So I did sociology. So I got a brief intro to who Marx was and such and such and such. And, I, and at the time I thought this guy was just ridiculous. Like what you mean by a stateless, classless society? Like mm-hmm. that's impossible. Mm-hmm. No, and sometimes I look like like I look back at myself at that time and I'm like, yo. <laughs> oh, like, what are you saying? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it's pretty simple. It's either you are for capitalism or you're against capitalism. For me, there are only three alternatives. And for Africans, there's really only one alternative or two. Mm-hmm. Right? There's three alternatives for the, for the majority of the world. Communism, or socialism, mm-hmm. those are the only other three ideologies. Right? And within those ideologies, you have split groups or subsets. Right? Anarchism, as someone as as, as Thomas Ankara said, is not for Africans. Right. right? Socialism is for Africans. And even before colonization, when when I'm get on Twitter into a cultural nationalist and you're like, yo, that's a white man's ideology and such. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Before colonization, the Africans were practicing Harambe, Ubuntu, Ujama. Literally, Ubuntu means we are, therefore I am. Mm. And because I am, therefore we are. So there are active systems of socialist policies. The only reason why we're calling it socialism is because Marx actively studied our own ideologies while we were enslaved. And you don't have to be a dogmatic follower of Marx, because personally, I don't believe in religion is the opium of the people. And for Africans, that can never be the case, that Africans naturally are spiritual people. I also don't believe in this ideology about a long-term proletariat where they are useless in the revolutionary struggle. Thomas Sankara spoke about this, where actively everyone regardless of your social status, should be actively involved in, in a revolution. Prostitutes, the homeless man, all of those, and we don't cast anybody away. We, we just within our own in African identity. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be a dogmatic father of Marx, but there are certain principles that Marx points out that are irrefutable. Mm-hmm. And if you choose not to follow his ideology because, oh, he's a white man and blah, 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 
that was anti-intellectual. All of the revolutionary movements were pro-socialism. There was no revolutionary movement within Africa that was pro-capitalism. I've never heard of a capitalist, a capitalist uh, revolution. <laughs> Only capitalist revolution is you are where the Europeans from feudalism, where right. Napoleon was fighting the wars against um, the kings in France. And they overturned that system. Right. And even that, I'm like, if you can see that and realize that revolution is not some, oh, we're going to vote and we're going to get all the rights that we deserve, it is an active struggle, armed struggle. And I think because, again, the education system and just the whole social system that we're involved in has pacified us to a certain level where we see these things as distant mm-hmm. um, or impossible or a word that people like to use or, or liberals like to use is are, what, what are like human rights violations. If yeah. you take a struggle against the enemy, you're violating human rights. And, um, and, I, and I would get into that when I talk about the situation in, in um, Cameroon. Um, this is like just, just the way the media has been used to just carry it on an agenda. And people have been inoculated so well mm-hmm. that when you bring these kind of arguments to them, they're, 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 they're looking at you from Yeah. And to add to that, whenever I see people say that um, socialism failed in Africa, and I just look at that as you being ignorant, <laughs> because without socialism and the world wars which were fought between capitalism and socialism slash communism, there would be no independence in Africa. Right. And the reason why Africa isn't socialist is because anyone who was a major follower of socialism was either annexed, mm-hmm. assassinated, or overthrown. So to say um, that it's embargoed and all kind of stuff. Huh? I say we or or slapped with a lot of trade embargoes and all kind of things. It's like it's a silly to say that. Because the only way someone can say that is if they don't know what they're talking about. Right. And without a global outlook on imperialism, and neocolonialism and capitalism, you would see that there were constant proxy wars that were being fought within the continent. Mm-hmm. And not even Africa alone, if you look at the global south, and even here in the Caribbean, all the government in um, coups and, the, and um, the interventions were not just some random act of, oh, the U.S. is... Right. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it was a conscious decision mm-hmm. on the parts of the imperialists to leave these states in complete and utter turmoil to reap the rewards of their resources. Well, indeed, exactly. And um, what's interesting now is I know you see in the news, the new buzzword is critical race theory. You know, (laughs) you have, you know, it's it's always something new every six months, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, this is the new thing, right? And so, um, uh, you know, they... 24-hour news cycles, they're, they're talking about it. Um, the, you know, these, I saw an article today about, like, there's 140 new organizations in the United States 
dedicated to fighting critical race theory, right? And um, <laughs> but one of the things that's <laughs> it's funny, but it, it, I mean, because they don't even know how to, they can't even define what it is. They don't even know what it is, right? It's just know it has something to do with us. <laughs> so <laughs> like, right? So they're they're mad. But the thing about um, what I find interesting is kind of keeping in a uh, uh, line of what we were talking about. They call it, they call the teaching that America's institutions are inherently racist is Marxist and communist. They say that, right? And that, that has nothing to do with Marxism or communism, but it's so, just another example of like how you said, um, those two things, those those ideas get demonized to the point where, you know, we won't study them. And the people uh who are putting out this propaganda, even even um even white people, you know, uh who are uh working in these, you know, jobs where they're getting exploited and uh a a uh, workers union will will come out and say hey man we're, we're going to try to go and try to get you guys in the union and they'll they'll vote against it man you know what i'm saying and it's like it's like i, I think it's like they don't really understand like like what it means to be a socialist and so with that said though there are within the quote-unquote conscious community because sometimes they act unconscious like they don't know what the hell they're talking about a lot of times we get stuck and fixated on studying uh, certain people, the same people, right, um, over and over. But I noticed people like Walter Rodney, Thomas Sankara, Kwame Nkrumah, like a lot of people within the so-called conscious community don't even know who the hell these people are. And I find that sad because these aren't people that were just writing about things they were writing about it and getting out there and doing something about it right and bringing it back to the critical race theory aspect of things and school we always learn about their revolutions the american revolution 1776 we learn about this right we learn about the alamo we learn about all of these things that they would consider revolutionary but we don't ever learn about our revolutionaries especially within a system of school but i find it interesting sometimes that people who are in this in the so we are one black community regardless to whom or what but i'm referring to the people that would consider themselves conscious and people who study why is it that a lot of people um, don't go and study the Walter Rodney's and Thomas Sankara's and, um, you know, people that were, that wrote books, that wrote these, these deep and, and intellectual books and then went out and did this work, um, and led revolutions and Kwame Nkrumah, uh, you know, led Ghana's revolution in 57. Like, why, why a lot of people, in your opinion, in the you know quote unquote conscious community um aren't studying these people um like we study some of the others yeah so 
I want to go back to what you said in the beginning about the workers acting against their own interests. Mm-hmm. That's actually a symptom of imperialism, capitalism, and mm-hmm. And after the fall of the USSR, the workers' unions and all the socialist policies just fell down the drain. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'd also like to mention that the capitalist system fails literally. Literally, it, it collapses every seven to eight years. You see it constantly throughout history. Probably in like 2025 or six, there will be another recession. And we'll just say, oh, they'll bail out the billionaires over and over and over again. So that is why they act against their own interests because mm-hmm. of heavy, heavy, heavy propaganda. Right. And if you look at if you look at when America was going through the Great Recession in the 20s and FDR was under huge, 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 huge pressure, what took America out of that recession were socialist and communist parties going to FDR and saying, hey, this is what you need to do. And FDR going to the billionaires and saying, hey, I want to tax the hell out of you. I don't really care what I have to say. This is what we're doing. And that's it. And luckily, or, or what people don't know is that FDR is still the most popular president that the United States has, has ever seen. Right. Because why? He implemented socialist and communist policies. Mm. He's the longest ever serving American president for mm. 12 years. And after that, that is when they put a cap on the years that American presidents could serve. Because rich people are like, yo, no, we like, like, like we can't keep doing this. And but, so people but, don't really know. Right. And so that's so that's why I kind of wanted to get at too. They America has aspects of socialism already. Rich people, it's how much how many breaks do rich people constantly get as far as you know what I mean? It's like they are the biggest socialists. <laughs> you know what I'm literally, saying? Like, literally, I like 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 I tell people this. When rich people say that um poor people depend on the government too much, right? They complain about the welfare system. The people that depend on the government the most are multinational corporations mm. or or like aid or tax breaks or just any sort of policy that will cut their cost and maximize their profit. So to look at poor people and say, hey, you depend on government too much, mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous because mm-hmm. they are the ones who depend on the government. <laughs> actively lobbying the policies mm-hmm. by our organizations such as ALEC to get their policies in place to help them gain more wealth. And unless people start waking up and realizing that you're, you're, you are actually in a class warfare on all levels, they'll constantly be doing the same thing until they crash the economy, then they get bailed out, and you repeat the cycle all over again. Bro, and that, you, you, and exactly. And before we go into the question about uh, Thomas Sankara and you know yeah. why these guys aren't studied as much as they should be, one thing that you something that you said reminded me of, and especially when it comes to propaganda and how powerful it is, um, Prager U, uh, you know, like that right wing 
PragerU is like is a right right wing organization in America with a lot of money behind it. That whose whole goal and aim is to put out um, anti communist propaganda. And one one of the things in the propaganda was communism has killed one hundred million people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right 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 but look but look but the, <laughs> but check it out bro the all right and they didn't talk about the vast majority of those people that they're counting were nazis <laughs> nazis and nazis that killed communists exactly they weren't talking they weren't but it's it goes to show you the power of propaganda especially if they got some money behind it they'll you know they'll put that kind of stuff out man but um let's move to the second part of the question where what is it about because i well first i had a brother from uh ghana on um and he was telling me how hard it is to get Kwame Nkrumah books in Ghana, right? And so that was an eye-opener for me. Um, in America, a lot of, don't get me wrong, a lot of people do read and study, you know, Kwame Nkrumah and Thomas Sankara, but, and uh, other, and Walter Rodney and others like him. But there's a big, uh, there's a big demographic of people that don't, who are also, in what you would call the conscious community. What is it about these brothers who are extremely revolutionary, extremely intelligent, some of the most intelligent, um, you know, people Definitely. we've ever had to diagnose what's going on globally? Why aren't they celebrated like they should be? Well, first and foremost, I am an encrumatorist. So I study in Kuma and Ahmed Secretary. I'm a follower of their ideology. So one of the reasons why Rodney and Nkuma and Tori and others are virtually understood, in my opinion, is because line argument that they make or the or one of the ideologies that they use within their work, which is Marxism. Mm -hmm. right? and, as, and as we said before, the propaganda around Marx is is very very strong but another reason is because if you take a look at the production of books that they've written um literally their books are some of the most expensive books yes they are that you can buy mm -hmm. i was looking at neocolonialism the lot no i think it's neocolonialism last stage of imperialism or something like that by Kwame and Kuma. Yeah. And that's like $45. Yes, it is. And, and some of the other works, which are relatively unknown, are even more than that. So the cost is another deterrent for, for some people. That's a good point. As well as the, the fake conscious people who... Basically, for me, the whole tech kind of people who they romanticize Kemet and all they talk about is Egypt. <laughs> that's, to be honest with you, like, that's what I'm getting at. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And that's why, like, 
your first answer, that's why, you know, I thought that was a great answer is because you talked about, you know, studying it all. You know what I'm saying? Um, And so I don't I don't mind if somebody studies Kemet or, you know, know, but if you if you if you're only staying there. Right. um, You missing out on a whole lot of other things that involve our mental liberation and physical liberation, right? And so that, why do the, so, you know, I was trying to be politically correct, right? (laughs) Not piss nobody off, but it is what it is. There's a lot of people who claim consciousness who steady, you know, regurgitate the same shit all the time. And, and, And they have no idea who these people are, right? I don't, I understand the people who aren't in these circles who are still trying to learn. Like, there's a whole bunch of, there's a lot of things that I don't know. There's a lot of things you don't know. We, nobody knows at all, right? And we're never going to, like, you know, use information to act like we are better than somebody. But there are a lot of people, you know, who are within the conscious community who act as if they are authorities on things, right? Um, I'm talking about some of the most arrogant bullshit, but you, <laughs> but you can't. But they don't. They don't deal in some of the most scholarly, revolutionary works that um, have ever been created. I just find that funny. Um, what what I characterize those people as are cultural reactionaries, mm. where all they do is romanticize about the past. Without using what without using knowledge of the past to affect the present and the future, so they will read history, right, and pick out little points that fits their agenda. Because to be real, people have specific agendas, and we forget sometimes that movements can be easily co-opted, and words can be easily misinterpreted and misdirected because words are neutral. Literally, it takes the consciousness of the person who is interacting with the message to portray it in a certain way. So someone might read about, let's say, Amilcar Cabral Mm. and his struggling genie and be like, yo, this guy's a terrorist. (laughs) And another person will read him and be like, whoa, this big guy, like this guy's a revolutionary. So it all depends on the person's consciousness while they're interacting with, it, with, with um, the, the information. Mm-hmm. And for most of the cultural reactionaries that I, I see online or I interact with, it's basically because they're caught up in this, well, I wouldn't say caught up, but because they're searching for their identity, it takes, it takes note over the diaspora of African people. So they believe that whatever they're studying is what everybody in the diaspora should, should understand. Mm, right. So right. I see these pages are the arguments like every three to five business days. Who are the true Israelites? Who are the true Hebrews? Right. Um, religion and spirituality. And yeah, we need intellectual debates about those stuff. But when it gets to a point where it's like you're beating a dead horse, then you're just 
serving the interests of the capitalist system, which right. really doesn't care about whatever religion or whatever. Like, it doesn't really care about any of that. Like, literally, mm-hmm. they will allow you to study your history up to a certain point mm-hmm. when you start enacting the practices that happened in those times. That is when it is cracked down upon. And most people don't practice it. They just theorize and romanticize. Basically, they become egotistic yeah. with their relaying of the information where they're like, Oh, I'm better than you guys. I know about yeah. this. I know about that. When really and truly, they are actively trying to change the material situation for African people. And right. no, yeah, exactly. And that's and I guess that's what I was um, striving to articulate. Is, is very well said. Is that the debates are fine? Is we all it's still sharp and still. And I like a good intellectual debate at times myself, right? But it, that can't that can't be it. That's not the that ain't the goal. You know what I'm saying? Um, and uh, and so with that said, like you said, you know we have the a lot of the same um, a lot of the same uh, like you said every three to five business days. Who are the real Hebrews? Who are the real Egyptians? And like I said, you have these people like Walter Rodney, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, who a lot of other brothers who did these great works, Kwame Turi, you know, we get, let's have a debate about their philosophies. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like that will be probably more productive in a lot of cases. Definitely. Uh, but the, I wanted to, um, because uh, we could build on that all night, man. So, I, you know, there's a lot of things I want to touch on. Um, uh, you've uh, written a book, Thoughts of an Unchained Mind. In this book, um, you speak about womanism versus black feminist thought. Mm-hmm. Um, without telling everything that's in the book, obviously, if you can just um, build with us about, you know, what's the difference between womanism and black feminist thought? Uh, so, feminism is initially a white woman's ideology where they need liberation from their patriarchal counterpart, right? Womanism is more family-oriented, and it's actually termed Africana womanism mm. because it was... Cause Tenora Hudson Weems, the founder of African um, ideology, wanted an alternative to feminism because we know the, the negative connotations within the African community in regards to, well, amongst black men in regards to feminist thought and among the indigenous traditional people that are of diaspora. And with feminism, I see when you add black to it, it becomes okay, hmm. right? Even though it is really a white ideology, right? Like, it's not something that was created universally for everyone. Because mm-hmm. when we were slaves together, they weren't thinking about us. But you know, not to cut you off. Uh, what's funny about that is, though, white feminists have often called Sojourner Truth 
like the first feminist, but she was she was enslaved by by y'all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so to, I don't understand. I don't understand the to um to um go to Bill and Sajoyna Truth. Actually, in one of her speeches, and I have it in the book, mm-hmm. which is a bit controversial. Um, see if I can find it. Uh, Sajoyna, 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 Sajoyna. Uh, it looks like, oh, here it is. To further the misinformation about amongst most black feminists, they somehow gloss over the fact that what Bell Hooks doesn't cite in entire woman is the fact that when you read Sojourner True's speeches, she tells people that white women were smarter than black women, which is why they should listen to them. In Sojourner's keeping the thing going while things are stirring speech, at the American Equal Rights Association, she clearly states, and I have this in bold, highlighted, quoted, everything, white women are a great deal smarter and know more than colored women, while colored women do not know scarcely anything. So what Bell Hooks is parroting in Ain't I a Woman were the talking points of white racist feminists of the 19th century. Wow, wow. Okay, so that's a lot to unpack, right? A lot to unpack. So one, it's obvious what white pathology and slavery did to the African mind, right? Um, it, it did a number on us. And I'm not going to hold, you know, Sojourner Truth to the same. Yeah, because she was just a slave of her time. Right. But, like you said, people like Bell Hooks who quote ain't I a woman. So you're saying she's not quoting it in the context of the of the the time and the attitude that it was presented in, which was white women are smarter than black women. No, she, Bell Hooks, literally, she, in her work, she doesn't cite anybody. She literally making up stuff as she goes basically <laughs> in her head. And she's parroting what white feminists have been saying since Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. Right? And because black women during the time that we're in where we realize that they have been marginalized, mm-hmm. any sort of information that gives credence to what they internally believe, they will go on to it up as the holy grail of their liberation mm-hmm. when really and truly it's not true it's all false and it's just the ranting of an angry and you yeah. know what i really like saying it's what just an angry black woman at the time right. which is what this was and if you look at Belux, she literally states that the central park five were guilty, like, that is who black men and boys are. And literally, she writes about this stuff. Wow. And then, two years down the line, you realize that, hey, they weren't guilty. Mm-hmm. So, you realize the inconsistencies within your own they argument. Had, they had some bell hooks quotes in the um, 
in the uh, belts quotes in the uh, civil rights museum. So this is not somebody that is not respected within those exactly. white circles. I mean, she's, you know, all of her stuff is everywhere. Before um, we go anywhere else, where can we, like, um, where did you come across the information that, you know, Sojourner Truth had those, had those thoughts about, you know, herself and how she viewed white women? For me, when, when I find uh, ideology, I don't just gloss over it. I do deep research. So when I first heard about feminism, because as I said, when I was younger, I was kind of a conservative. So I was like, yo, feminism is garbage and, mm-hmm. and such and such and such. But then as I teetered along on the political lines, I was like, well, feminism doesn't really seem too bad. And I started reading like Chimamanda and Gozi, Adisha. I'm like, yeah, it, it is viable. And then I started going further along. And I'm like, all right. Susan B. Anthony and other feminists wanted to, wanted white women to gain voting rights before black people mm-hmm. and actively tried, tried to go against Frederick Douglass's about. Just the end, just the whole abolitionist movement. And then I'm like, all right, then that's possibly just a, a little nuance or, a, or a inconsistency. Then I reached the 60s and I'm like, all right, the Black Panther Party. Feminists went to the women within the Black Panther Party and were like, hey, join us over here. While the Black Panthers were fighting the fight that they were in. And people such as Catherine Cleaver spoke out against it. And she's like, these white women came to us at the heights of our struggle, asking us to side with them. But why would they do that? We were already an oppressed minority fighting for liberation. It would be just stupid to divide the forces right. color to work with white women. And what most feminists have realized, and I've spoken to people, who believe that all feminism is the same, or that, no, well, feminism is one thing. Mm-hmm. They don't apply any class analysis or race analysis or any of that, because I have feminists who, 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 who are my, I, I love, like Angela Davis, and that woman is a brilliant woman, and you can see within her works where her arguments for feminism are somewhat along the lines of what Clenora Hudson Weems puts forth in womanism, but she just turns it feminism. So people don't actively study these stuff. They don't they just run a narrative that is pushed that is put forth them. And I would like to add to that. When Clenora Hudson Weems came out with came out with the ideology. She um, states, well, or I state in the book, black feminism in, in, in an attempt to center the black woman simultaneously and rather ironically employs white feminist ideologies that positions their male counterpart, the black man, as an instrument of patriarchy. This is also one of the main criticisms of black feminist thought that it too closely adopts feminist theory and applies it to black people. Through multiple studies, there has been, it has been proven that black men themselves are victimized by patriarchy 
at higher rates than black women. Mm. Black feminist theory still retains and assumes this, part, this spectacularly problematic and simply incorrect understanding as dogma. Wow. If you think patriarchy, the first people who were subjugated by patriarchy were black men because we were seen as lesser men. Mm. Patriarchal societies weren't necessarily a norm from where we're coming from. Right. Literally, the gender relations that we have adopted here in the West and see as some, as, as, as some sort of eternal thing is not true. In Africa, there were various matrilineal, matriarchal figures, and the relation between man and woman was, drast was drastically different from in Europe. And what we're practicing now, or what we're looking through now, is a European paradigm on our African reality. And that is also one of the roles that, again, the state props up mm -hmm. to further inoculate and divide black people. So, right. you, so, so you get the black man fighting against a black woman, mm -hmm. black woman fighting against a black man, gender wars, the, the miscegenation, mm -hmm. like just the ridiculous divestor logic, and all of us. And just take a look. The state actively plays a role in the destruction of the black family. Mm -hmm. And I hear arguments of that a nuclear family is a European ideology. Yeah, probably, but family structure changes with the economic system. So with capitalism, you literally have to work to survive. That is why you have women actively working because a man working alone cannot sustain. Also, women want independence as well, which is, there's, there's absolutely no problem with that. But when you look at the family structure through, and I'm going to America, through just in America, Initially, it was primarily extended family, where everyone lived together in, and, and this is post-slavery. I'm not talking because I don't consider there to be a family structure within slavery because you were slaves. You, like, you, like, you didn't have a choice of who you were going to stay with. Mm -hmm. So post-slavery, the family structure was mainly extended, mm -hmm. right? Where the dad would go to work, mom stays home, takes care of children, right? After Reconstruction and Black people supposedly got the right to vote, they were, quick, they were quickly repressed and the right was taken away. They had to fight for that again post-Reconstruction in the second. And when you go forward, you realize that, all right, you realize that, okay, the prison system, which is an active player in, in, in um, the destruction of the Black family, children, primarily men, started getting into more trouble. The poverty in the black community was rampant. So obviously your decisions tend to be well, it, it tends to be irrational to rich people, but for a poor person, it's completely rational. So more people started going to prison, or well, more men started going to prison. So fathers started to disappear, sons started to disappear. Then while that's going on, the welfare states come, come into play in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where the state says, hey, if you want these checks, 
there needs to be or there shouldn't be an active father figure with, within the household. So it was an incentive for women to say, hey, and I'm going to collect this, 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 this check because they're poor. So when you're poor, your thoughts somewhat stray. It's more in a, it's more in a, you're more in a survival mode. Yeah. So you, so you aren't thinking about the future, the future because all they want is just the no, like, like you need to eat no, you need to, to survive no. Mm-hmm. So because people don't look at the history as well as the ideology itself, they become warped up in some kind of a movement that they don't even understand. Right. Yeah, man, that's that's great, man. I, I can't wait to, uh, to read the book, bro. Um, um, what? Uh, okay, and so we talked earlier about... Um, First, well, before we go into that, pseudo history. What is pseudo history to you, and why? And 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 what do we and what do we do to stop the spread of it? Pseudo history to me is the. I teach another day that when people are searching for their identity, they create meta history, mm-hmm. where it's history that fits whatever conception of themselves that they have. Mm. So they try to find themselves or they try or they try to input themselves in whatever fits their profile. So try to input themselves in Rome in, in European history with you know there are black people in European history and, and such as which which we should acknowledge, but you shouldn't try to force yourself in something that is not ne- that is not necessarily your own. Mm-hmm. Then, being the natives of, of, of um, America, <laughs> because you're black. <laughs> and my counter to that argument is: anyone who knows history knows that all of the world at one point was literally black color, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't. Until after the, um, the Pleistocene period, that Europeans started to lose their color, and Asian also started to lose their color. Because mm-hmm. if you look on the most well, the Asian countries that, that, that are closest to Africa, you realize that they are melanated people, which are what we call Melanesians. Right. And we characterize ourselves as black, not African. When we see someone who looks remotely like us, we try to input ourselves into their history, also because of the loss of self-identity that we have. Mm-hmm. And counter to that is to actively we, the ones who are the holders of the truth, as well as the, the, the ones that come before us who we, who we, who, who we study, is to educate. Right, as much as they might say ignorant stuff, I will probably get angry or or annoyed. We have to realize that that was the plan. That is what the system wants. So it, it is for us to become even more conscious than we already are, mm-hmm. and realize that regardless of what these people might think. At the end of the day, it is up to us to bring to them the truth. And without them, 
the masses of the people, or what we would consider the masses of the people, will never be complete. And if we want to achieve liberation, we need to actively engage the masses of the people. Yeah. And when you see them tweet weird stuff, you have to remember that it's just the internet. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like you don't know who is there in the account. Could yeah. be CIA, FBI. Um, it, yeah, exactly. It could, you don't know who's behind that keyboard. So to actively engage and get angry and mope and all of that, it's, it's revolutionary because you need them just like, just like you need the person who is caught in the conservative mindset or you need the person who is caught in the liberal mindset because at the end of the day, all of us want the same thing, or at least I think all of us want the same thing, but we just disagree as to how we should get it. And respectful discussion and education is key to the mending and the closing of the gap between the various aspects of the liberation movement, or so-called liberation. I I agree, because not only the two people that are having the conversation, or if it's multiple, let's say it could be, you know, three or four people all engaging in a discussion about our origin. Um, People are watching and people are learning. You know what I'm saying? And and people get inspired when they see young brothers and sisters such as ourselves exchange information and teach and it inspires them to learn. And I've learned a lot from people just observing their conversations as well, where I'm not even engaging, you know, just listening or, or, or watching, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you're exactly right. And that's a powerful point. Um, being from Jamaica, I well, I have in the past uh, um, read uh, uh, a few books on uh, Rastafarianism, and what I what I really what I love about Rastafarianism is it was born out of oppression, right? Like it was born out of an oppressive government in Jamaica. You know what I'm saying? Um, And they were in a lot of uh, ways outcasted and ostracized in society. And they still still uh, were true to themselves and stayed themselves. And um, if you can just speak on like how, you know, powerful and revolutionary um, Rastafarian culture is for those who you know who may not be aware of it because I think a lot of people um, and it and it's probably not even us it's probably not even us black people but a lot of people you know may only see the the cannabis part of uh, you yeah. know Rastafarianism and and nothing else um, so if you can just speak on you know like uh, the impact of Rastafarian culture because uh, it's not just Jamaica. Um, it's it's you know, Rastafarian culture has permeated America and Africa. There are Rastafarians in America who have never been to Jamaica. There are Rastafarians in Africa, in West Africa, especially, and East Africa, but West Africa especially, who have never been to Jamaica. And so that just goes to show the power of it. But if you can't just speak on that some. Right, so the misconception that people have is to believe that Rastafarianism is a religion. Mm. It's not a religion, it's a liberation movement. That's what it was 
born. Um, it was initiated against the repressive um, pro-capitalist government that, that was in Jamaica at the time, i.e. Alexander Bustamante. And the first or the, or the major proponents of Rastafarianism weren't even what, what we would characterize today as Rastas. Mm -hmm. They were like, like Leonard Howell and, and others. And one of their main... main yeah, that's, that's before locking your hair. Yeah, and not, exactly. not, right. The, the um, locking of the hair was initially to... Uh, well, it was, well, it was initially a sign of... of what do you call it now? Um, going against the system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where they're like, well, we well, we're not cutting our hair. Um, we're going to practice our African roots. And because they were so anti-system or what they would call Bondung Babylon, right? The government in Jamaica actively tried to destroy the movement, literally. Bustamante, our prime minister at the time, literally said, get up all the Rastas, dead or alive. Literally, get up all the Rastas. These guys were just practicing who, who they were. They were actively going against the status quo. And even today, they aren't accepted because if you were supposed to go to a school in Jamaica, and you were supposed to wear locks, you would have I, to... I just saw a... Um, not to cut you off, but I just saw a news story where... And, and I was surprised, but not surprised again, but two kids in uh, Jamaica were just allowed to wear locks in the elementary school. Like, I didn't know that there was uh, something banning them or prohibiting them to do so. Yeah, because in Jamaica... The school system is highly colonial in its framework, like the same way. So in school, even my hair that like the height it's at now would have to be cut. Wow. Like the height of your hair now is what I would have to wear to school. And the beard and all that has to be cut. Wow. To go wow. to school. And unlike America, we have uniforms. Mm -hmm. Right? And just the whole structure of the school system. You learn about literally just in regards to Africa, slavery, and you learn a little, and a little bit about national heroes, and then that's it. Do you, so, do you learn about like people like uh, you know Queen Nanny of the Maroons and yeah, Marcus Garvey and vaguely like in Jamaica or to the world? Jamaica seems like a a highly cultural-based society. But when you live in a society, you know, it's only at like certain points of the year. And then after that, that's it. So when you learn about nanny, the nanny that we're learning about is not necessarily in a revolutionary way. Because mm -hmm. as I said, they have to pacify our heroes in order to keep us within the status quo. Mm -hmm. So you so like you learn about the just just gloss over the national heroes and like just gloss over them. For so in Jamaica, when Rastas are 
or supposedly accepted is only when they bring some sort of revenue into the country, right? Because when you take a look at um, Bob Marley and the impact that he's had on the world and the amount of revenue that his legacy generates, mm-hmm. they aren't brought back to the country. Mm-hmm. And even the legacy of Bob Marley pacified even his funeral, the people who showed up at his funeral, Bob Marley would have, he would have got up out of his grave <laughs> to all of those people to go back to where they're coming from. And we have to remember that when Bob was alive, he wasn't a well-loved figure among the wealthy. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. That's and like then, how we were talking about MLK and yeah. you know other people like Muhammad Ali that they act like exactly. now. Right. Bob literally was making liberation music. Right. He spoke directly to the masses of the people. Like, if you listen to Bob Marley, his vocals are really, oh, like Aretha Franklin or a great singer, but the message he portrayed and the struggle that you can hear coming from his voice and the pain in his music resonates with the soul. Right? And the stuff that Bob was talking about and the whole Kennedy situation, even in Jamaica today, with the decriminalization of cannabis and the somewhat legalization of it as well, you realize that it is co-opted by capitalism, where the ganja farmers who are in the hills of brownstone are or West, as we call them here, are the ones profiting from cannabis. It is the multinational, the national, bourgeois people who go to places like Ethiopia and buy weed for like 5,000 Jamaican dollars, which is probably like $40 in America, which for Jamaica, that is a lot of money to pay for weed. Because literally, you could go to a corner shop and get probably the same amount of weed for like a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Right. So there's a there's a, a a public meaning mainstream acceptance of rasters only if they're bringing in money. Mm. Within the Jamaican society, rasters are still stigmatized, they're still marginalized and the funny enough, Rastas normally keep themselves. They let like, they go right. living like Bubba Hill are like literally. And some of them, one of their tactics that probably angers the government somewhat is that majority of them separate themselves from the Jamaican society as a whole to the point where they don't pay taxes, mm. right? Like the, like Maroon Town and others. Mm-hmm. So there's still an active going against of the system mm-hmm. and I don't think Rasta is or Rastafarianism will ever be fully incorporated mm-hmm. in the society. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree because like you said, it's built and founded on liberating oneself from an oppressive system. And as long as that system stays the same, they're not going to have any inkling in you know, a, an acceptance of Rastafarianism from the people. Because imagine if if 
Jamaica just became like majority roster, then you know people are going to be eating right. They're going to be reading books and they're going to be separating themselves from, you know, what they consider, you know, Babylon, right? And um, and so that's not good for the economy, to for them, right? And that's not yeah. good. And they don't want to see us, um, you know, they don't want to see us uh, uh, start flexing that type of power. And you mentioned one thing that I was going to bring up. Um, you know, there are people um, and I don't, I don't name I don't name a lot of names when I talk about these people because I don't like to give them any light. But there are people who uh, and I think I don't know if there's agents or if they are that that misinformed or if they, you know, doing this for a check. But there are people who, you know, have these huge platforms that speak on about things such as, uh, uh, you know, the transatlantic slave trade uh, not being real, right? Right. We're not even going to have to talk about them. They're crazy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, you, ha you still have maroon towns or maroon colonies in Jamaica to this day, right? And for people that don't know, um, if you, uh, Maroon was, uh, you know, uh, an enslaved African who, who pretty much uh, revolted, ran away, and created their own, uh, you know, communities. Um, if you can tell tell us about some of those Maroon communities that are still in Jamaica, because that right there is a direct link back to West Africa. All right, so in Jamaica, these communities are primarily rural, mm -hmm. right? Because after, it, well, after emancipation, the British offered Africans who were enslaved to go into apprenticeship, which is to work for another, what, like eight years for free. And Africans were like, no, we're not doing that. We already toiled for like 200 years here. And so, so, they, so they decided to go up into the hills to form their own communities. So in Jamaica, you have towns like Ashanti, um, Maroon Town, um, Bobo Hill. Um, those are probably the mainstream ones that most people would know about. Um, they govern or they're self-governing, meaning they have their own election within the community. Mm -hmm that they are starting to become more mainstream with their society. Because I, for one, have never been either of them. I've normally just heard, heard about them or I've read about them or I see probably the leaders of the community on the television. And mm -hmm. funny enough, aren't necessarily Rasta or that, or that active cultural figure that you would think would be the leader. It's normally a guy who is well-learned um, and is for the people, which should be just the whole framework of what, whatever leadership position that you're putting. Right. So in Jamaica, most people, whenever they're sick and stuff like that, funny enough, most <laughs> people when they're sick, and it's probably going back to African spirituality, where, Jama where we are incredibly suspicious of doctors and hospitals. So we go for 
holistic healing. Yeah. And Same way here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then if that doesn't work, then probably we'll try the doctor. Mm. Or we'll or we'll pray before. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the doctor. So most people go to these places and communities for holistic healing, spiritual upliftment, and self and, and self enlightenment. Because wow. when you go to places, they're they aren't you know, the noise of cars or technology or just the whole bombarding or the bombardment of the modernization of the world. So you get a closer outlook or a broader outlook on the world in its truest form. Mm. When you tap into that kind of, of, of self-actualization, you yourself raise in a certain level of, or you become, or you get to a higher level of consciousness because you are connecting to nature, right? And the nature is a part of who we are as human beings. Because as I talk about in the book as well, we're all connected to one grid of consciousness. It's just various people tapping into the, 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 the self that they are and others who based on external forces, are unable to do so. So in Jamaica, that's what most of these places are for. And, and that's why foreigners, are, or that's why people in Europe, you see, start becoming Rasta. And within the Rasta community, there's a lot of this, like, a discrepancy because they're like, liberation is not fashion. And, and, so, right. so, so. and these people come to Jamaica and go to those places to tap in to the wealth of spirituality that can be found in these places. And in Jamaica, if you go to some of these places and you're like, you see fire in water. Mm-hmm. Literally, there's fire on top of the water. Mm-hmm. And you're like, nature, it's majestic. God and right. all earths are just majestic. And these are where you find some of the most spiritual and self-uplifting environments. You know, and that's, so I read this um, book one time. It was called uh, Nanny of the Maroons and the Asafo Warriors, I believe. And, you know, it went into the fact that in some of these maroon towns in Jamaica, um, they still speak like use some um chromanty words and african oh, yeah, yeah. languages which was dope you know what i'm saying and like that and and like and what it made me think of when you spoke about the technology and how like you know they're shunning a lot of because you know the european says he's bringing everybody civilization by bringing them technology right but at the same time destroying the planet and i just think it's dope that we still have communities of black people in different parts of the different parts of the world, because you know, now you, you not only have maroons in Jamaica, you have you have maroons in Mexico. You know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, I think it's dope that we still have pockets of Black people who are, like you said, you know, um, keeping it natural, keeping th- keeping that link to the ones that came before them and practicing their ways. You know what I'm saying? Because eventually i just have a feeling like things are going so fast <laughs> like eventually like we're all going to have to know some of that you know what i'm saying definitely um, because 
Okay. When I'm, when I'm think about it, right? And this is outside of the, let's say, revolutionary ideology where you're trying to in, incorporate everybody. This is just for sale, mm-hmm. right? When you look at the, the world and the, modern, and the so-called modernization of the world, it is an active destruction of humanity yeah. where technology has become the new god mm-hmm. right where technology have you ever not to cut you off have you seen that show american gods no no no, no. technology is actually a god in that show but keep going all right so i read a book the other day by i believe her name is Lashana. Lashana Buhoff, Buhoff. I don't really want to get her name wrong, but the book is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm-hmm. And after I read that book, I literally contemplated deleting the internet or just completely off my phone, was deleting every app. Because when you realize the control that technology now has over human life, it's scary. It is. Literally, when Trump won his, his election, it was literally because of technology. The Cambridge Analytica situation. Yeah, and on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Where they're literally programming algorithms to target audiences to get them to vote. And that's one of, and, and, that, and that's why I say, within a capitalist society, there's no way you can have a truly democratic election because you're constantly being mm-hmm. influenced mm-hmm. by various companies also people don't like literally people don't even like talking to people anymore right like, you are considered when like let's say you see somebody on the road and you engage them in a conversation like all of a sudden it's rude or or you ask them a question it's like weird and i'm like what Humans are social animals. We need to actively interact with another person or else we literally go insane. Right. That's how stuff like solitary. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. That's why people lose their mind in solitary confinement. So what people are actively doing as well is putting themselves in solitary confinement within mm. the what you call a free society by cutting themselves off from broader humanity and living through this thing that we call a phone, right? You cannot replace human interaction, true human interaction with technology. Because when you talk to to someone via the phone, you're literally talking to a robot or an AI that's transmitting messages from that person through you. And... It's just crazy when you think about it. Like, just think about Twitter, mm-hmm. right? The algorithms that they implement on Twitter are by accident. Mm-hmm. They are competing for our attention. Right. And unfortunately, Twitter is one of the main companies that buys and pays for our attention. And this is something that is trading, literally. When you see the stock market um, prices rise, it's because of us. Literally, the stock market was, was initially called stock, no, livestock and bondage. And it was actually African slaves who were stole on the stock market. So we don't realize that we are the ones that influence 
these kinds of situations. And until we wake up and self-actualize, we will just become slaves of the system, which is capitalism. All of this is that's what it is. <laughs> right. No, you're right. That's what it is. Um, and and yeah, yeah, that's that's dope. And you and you hit the nail on the head. They are a TikTok, the people on TikTok are competing for attention and the uh yeah. and the social media companies are competing for data <laughs> like just 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 want to add more um, one more point tiktok mm -hmm. i have a sister and if you check the screen time of a child at this age mm -hmm. they, literally all of their time is spent on a phone mm -hmm. and the app that they're on is on my tiktok mm -hmm. and you realize that people have started to live their lives through the technology where right. literally having an imperfect body or, or, or whatever it is is all of a sudden weird or unusual or not cool or, and that has contributed to the low self-esteem of my generation and the generations after me because we are literally the most depressed generation in history. It's literally mm -hmm. statistically proven. Imagine, people are living through <laughs> slavery. Right. So we are the most depressed generation in history, which are, which are millennials and probably boomers, kind of. What is it that's causing this depression? Yeah. And you have to realize that Whenever these stuff arise, it's not by accident. Mm -hmm. There are people in there are people in high places who actively engage in stuff to reap the rewards, i.e., capitalism. It's solely motivated by profit. Mm -hmm. So they literally destroy your whole world just to send you to a psychologist to pay probably a thousand dollars an hour or <laughs> whatever it is, or they feed you garbage food. So when later in life you get cancer, you have to pay medical costs because medical costs aren't free. Right. Or they give you garbage education and you become subservient to, to the system or you become a slave within your own self and stuff like that. So it's for people to actually wake up and realize and not become nihilistic because that is, that's a big thing that people do where they become nihilistic where everything seems to be, you know, what it is not me, I'm, I'm like a, a, a gross mistrust of any information at all. Mm -hmm. And what we lack as humanity in, in um, this regard is discernment, where we can't, right. or, or, the, or the inability to tell real from fake or true from false or what's mm -hmm. right from wrong. Right. So it is for all to actively educate ourselves. I keep saying this, education is liberation and, and, and education is elevation. Agreed. Once you start educating yourself on, on, on um, certain things, other things just, you know, it's like you start to realize certain stuff out of just that one text that you read and you're like, oh, well, this is connected. And then you go on and you study something else, like, oh, this is also connected. And then you begin to connect the dots Mm -hmm. and peace and, 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 and. that's that's what i said the other day 
I, I said I said the other day that you know for people that want to understand the natural world, it's good to study study different sciences, right? Not saying that you have to become an expert in these things, but it's good to study these uh, different sciences. And I know some people push back on that, but I look at it like this. There are thousands of black men and women from the United States, from the Caribbean and Africa who are doing amazing things within the different realms of science, right? Um, and I feel like we, and it kind of goes back to what you were speaking about whenever, you know, um, certain things being pseudo, is we have to be careful because we, we, want, we want our children to be, because I saw somebody the other day say, uh, NASA is liars. And I'm not saying NASA isn't liars, right? But what they were saying was, you can't trust anything about, you know, um, astrophysics and going into space. But I'm like, man, we've sent black women into space, right? And there's no room of science or history or mathematics where black people haven't represented in. You know what I'm saying? Um, even though technology is, and a lot of in the European, all right, so I look at it like this. So do you remember when um, scientists were, uh, racist European scientists were, uh, you know, the trying Indians. to argue Piltdown men and Europe and Europe was the, the uh, birthplace of humanity and they were putting together skulls that wasn't even real. Well, it took black scientists and ar black archaeologists to show and prove that that wasn't right. So I feel like the more we get into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics that we see in the hands of European cap and American capitalists is bad. But if we come in there with the cultural context of, you know, we're doing this for our people, we're doing this for the planet, we're doing this for good, then we could use the same technology for to reverse and save some of the things that American capitalists are using technology to kill. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And to add to that, um, we are the ones who gave Europeans the literal framework to do all of this. Right. When the Greeks were building their society, and they somehow forgot to add this to history, <laughs> <laughs> They were the ones that were going to Africa to learn. Mm. They were actively going to Africa to learn. Mm. And even to fast forward to probably a more modern context where you look at the medieval societies or empires that were in Africa. These guys were actively studying the globe while Europeans thought that the world was flat. flat. <laughs> literally, the Africans knew that the world could never be flat. Right, and, but but now, do you see black people are not starting to say, yeah, falling that, that the world is flat? See, this is what yeah. I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, and also, if you look at just the whole suppression of African history, if you study the works of 
J.A. Rogers and Sheck and John Henry Clark mm-hmm. and others, you realize that some of the discoveries that the Europeans made during Enlightenment and during the Dark Ages were already in Africa. The only <laughs> reason why they're highlighted is because Europeans were the ones who wrote history in their own way to prop up themselves. Or for themselves, yeah. Yeah, hey, so, man, I, brother, I've really, really, really appreciated this conversation, man. Um, it's been dope. Uh, I think the people are going to definitely love it. I mean, it's filled with information. For those who want to uh, cop the book, Thoughts of an Unchained Mind, um, where can they get that from? So the book will be published on June 25th. It will be available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And for those in Jamaica, you can contact me at Tristan DC for for Life or Tristan DC 4L on Instagram or my Twitter at Tristan G300. And you I will link up and I'll get you a physical copy of the book. No doubt, no doubt, man. Uh, like I say, bro, I, I want to uh, just say thank you for coming through. Um, I, I really, I really enjoyed uh, this bill, man. Um, uh, you know, we got to, we got to run it back. You know, it's because there's a lot more that we talked about definitely, earlier definitely. that we didn't even get a chance to get into. So, you know, we got to run it back, man. And uh, and so, uh, I definitely appreciate you for coming through, man. You have a good night, brother. Uh, I also like to add. Um, oh yeah. For all the people who are who have supported me along the journey, um, my mom, my dad, my sister, my aunt Juliet, um, the members of my local church, um, friends, my grandmother, aunts Tanya, aunt Sonia, and cousins. I thank you all for your support, and where we are, we are, we are in for some good stuff. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, that's dope. Just showing appreciation and showing the respect because we no man is an island unto himself, man. And we all we are we got to be honest with you. And as soon as we begin, we have we come from our families that birthed us. But as soon as we begin to see each other as family, things will change. You know what I'm saying? And um, I think we get in there. I think we get in there, man. But um, I definitely appreciate you for coming through. For sure, for sure.